one of my favourite songs uh, written over the last uh, couple of years. It was written by a little-known folk Irish singer. His name is Foy Vance. Some of you might know him. He recently supported a better-known man called Ed Sheeran on, it, on his world tour. And the song in question is this. It's called Two Shades of Hope. Foy Vance, he describes himself. He's a pretty angry man, it seems, when he's on stage, uh, as many folk singers are. Um, and uh, among many things he's, that made him such in that way is he's very disillusioned by the institu- institutional church of his country. But his lyrical insights often are as profound as the most eloquent philosopher. Let me, uh, let me just show you a couple of examples, an, an example if you can. Here's Frederick Nietzsche, for example, on, on hope. He says this, Hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of men. Now Nietzsche there is, is speaking of a hopelessness. Again, quite a morbid kind of character. But surely that is only half the picture with regard to hope. Foy Vincent puts it this way. That is, he says, there are two shades of hope. He says this, if there's one thing I know that there are two shades of hope. One, the enlightening soul. There's there's joy in hope sometimes. But the other is more like a hangman's rope. See, hope can be beautiful. It can be life-giving, enriching to all of us. But hopelessness. That is to be without hope. Well, Foyvance, he likens it to a very painful death. And, and you might even argue it's even worse than that. As he puts in his end of the chorus, he just simply says, hope deals the hardest blows. Well, you kind of think at this moment, this is going to be a fun sermon, isn't it? Well, let's hope that it may be at the end. Um, you know, let's uh, look at it, hope if we can. And it, because... It is hope, actually more particularly, hopelessness that kind of goes throughout this passage, that dominates this very strange and difficult uh, passage in 1 Samuel. I don't know if you've spotted, there are four points on your sheets, uh, just on the insert there. Have a look at those uh, as we go. They're not four random observations regarding this passage. What they really depict is, a, in a sense, like a fourfold downward spiral of hopelessness in the life of Saul. There is warning here, but in the hopelessness of Saul, I I guess our prayer ought to be as we begin that we see light, that we see some hope that we learn from Saul, because there are two shades of hope. Let's begin then, if we can, uh, on point one there, we see that Saul's hopeless circumstances, and the writer of 1 Samuel begins this section really kind of giving us a brief summary of the circumstances in his life. Look at verse 3, if you can, of, of chapter 28. He restates there, the writer, that, Saul's, sorry, that Samuel's died. Well, that's strange, isn't it? Because back in chapter 25, verse 1, he's already stated that. He's kind of just saying, you need to know this. This is an important piece of information, given what is about to happen. This is followed by the writer stating uh, Saul's kind of orthodoxy, his kind of right ethics, if you like, on the subject, the big subject of this chapter, that is regarding mediums and spiritists. You see that the end of verse 3 is simply showing that Saul is in line, if you like, it is practice with God's law. If you want to look at that, that's in Deuteronomy 18. 
So verse 3, if you like, looks back in the past. Verse 4 now turns to the present. We see there this detailed description of the military movements of both Saul and his men and also the Philistines. If we're in a pantomime at the Philistines, we'd all shout boo, but we're not there. So you just work with me. It's God's enemies have been again and again. And the reason there for the geographical detail is to show that this isn't just a little skirmish. The Philistines haven't just, you know, waltzed in over the line of the territory of Saul, Saul's area. They, they've not just a little skirmish. This is a major kind of military tactical maneuver. Uh, this is the Philistines we see there. They're camped at Shunem, which is at the east end of what we know as the plain of Esdraelon. Now, the significance of that is critical. It's not there in the text, but the geography tells us why that's so important. The Philistines, Iron Age, just come about, they've got iron chariots. To make those most effective, they need a plane. And if they've got a plane, it means they can charge at men and utterly destroy an army very, very quickly. They're camped there for a reason. And it is so significant for Saul. You see that. In verse 5, I hope you can understand the depth of verse 5 now, given that context. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid, and terror filled his heart. And at that point, you're kind of thinking, oh, poor old Saul. His circumstances, they're pretty terrible. He's in a bit of a hopeless situation, it seems, isn't it? Samuel's gone. Philistines are in his territory on his heels. Could it get any worse? The writer's kind of building up all these building blocks of his circumstances. And then you get to verse 6 and you see, wow, it could get a lot worse. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Samuel, the, the priest, the prophet, had gone. In, in chapter 22, Saul had killed off all the priests, bar one, Abiathar. And uh, the only, that one singular uh, priest that was left had gone and now was serving under David. Saul is alone. He's utterly isolated. A product of his own self-centered insecurity and ambition. He'd ignored and turned his back on God and now he was getting exactly what he'd been asking for. Utter silence from God. God had previously spoken through all the means noted in verse 6. The Urim, it's a bit of a crazy one, a bit of a strange one. We don't know exactly what it was, but the Urim was part of the priestly ephod, which Abiathar had now under the service of David. And scholars kind of argue about what the Urim was. That is, it could have been two stones, one black, one white, which God kind of oversaw in his sovereignty to give direction to his people. Is it going to be a white stone? And it might, we just don't know is the honest answer. But the point here is that Saul had nothing. Just a penetrating silence from God. No word. No direction, and therefore no hope. In the most terrifying of circumstances as well. I hope we can see that, how, how hopeless his circumstances are. And he can't suddenly look to God in anger, as none of us can either, you know, shake our fists at him or complain. He's getting nothing less than he has lived and worked towards. The silence of God didn't silence the terror in Saul's heart, though, did it? 
He's camped just, what is about 12 to 15 miles from the Philistine army. He is terrified. He is alone. And he begins to make decisions at this point. Hopeless decisions. Wrongly now turning from what he had rightly forbidden before. Let's look, second point, at some of Saul's hopeless decisions. We see them, they're littered throughout the passage, if I'm honest, but they're concentrated here in verse 7 to 14. And this is where things get obviously more complicated. God has been silent. And so Saul asks his men, could you go and find a medium for me? Interestingly, even though the practice of necromancy, which is speaking to the dead, if you like, um, that had been strictly forbidden it's interesting the men still know, oh, there's a woman down in Endor. We'll, we'll go and find her. It's interesting, isn't it? They knew exactly where she was. And Saul tries to sneak in unnoticed. Perhaps he, you know, likely he's just taken off his royal robes at this point and slipped on the most comfortable hoodie he had. Uh, we see the woman, you know, is savvy in verse 9. Look at her. She knows that there will be people working undercover probably for Saul, you know, kind of rooting out these kind of practices. She wants assurances. And Saul wants answers. And so Saul makes another ridiculous decision here. You can't miss the irony of verse 10, can you, really? Saul swears by the Lord that she would not be punished for doing something that he had outlawed. And was outlawed in God's word too. It'd be like so, you know, the head of the Met Police here in London, you know, saying to someone who's doing something pretty awful, even drug dealer or something like that, hey, you know... Give me some of those drugs and I promise that you won't be punished at all. It's a ridiculous thing. It's utter hypocrisy. But it's also unsubstantiated. He doesn't have the power to swear by the Lord on anything. Saul doesn't. Yet he sits there all alone in his hoodie in a dangerous place called Endor before a medium woman. Not a medium-sized woman, but a woman that is a medium looking for any shred of wisdom and guidance that he can find in the eerie silence of his hopeless solitude. Saul is in utterly hopeless circumstances, all of his making, and now he's about to make, he's making these hopeless decisions, all of which he is completely responsible for. Let me illustrate that if I can. In April 1945, war was nearly over. Germany were caving on all sides under Allied pressure. But Joseph Goebbels, who was head of Nazi propaganda, famously rang Hitler and was ecstatic. It was amazing. Why? Well, because President Franklin D. Roosevelt was dead. It didn't matter to, uh, you know, to, to Goebbels that the Russians and the Americans and the British, they were all closing in on Berlin. They were very close at this stage. And he told Hitler on the phone very famously, it is written in the stars. The last half of April will be a turning point for us. Now, Go Goebbels was actually a, an avid follower of horoscopes. And the two previous astrological predictions that he had heard from his uh, kind of reader was at the beginning of April, and they had resulted in terrible losses for Germany, as was forecast. 
But in the second half of April in 1945, the stars apparently, as he saw, were aligning and predicting this great victory, Goebbels believed. The death of the American president, he believed, was, if you like, the the start of this wonderful victory. But on April the 30th, Hitler committed suicide. The victory was not on that side, was it? One scholar put it this way, facing ruin, people will sometimes turn in their desperation to any resource that they think will give some hope, some direction, some meaning. So it was with Saul, so it was with Joseph Goebbels. I I I just want to ask, I guess, are we immune from such hopeless decision making? How do you respond when your circumstances seem hopeless? Or maybe just to nuance that, they just haven't quite worked out as you want. Where do you turn in those moments? Who do you ignore? Saul had ignored God's word. It has been his practice before to keep away from necromancers, people who speak to the dead. He simply now was living out what he'd rehearsed, though, so many times before. Just turning his back on God, not listening to his word. And now he's bearing the consequences for that. And so we get verse 11, the woman begins her work. And Saul asks that Samuel be brought up. And so the hopeless... Silence that he was enduring from God might come to an end. That's his desire. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried in verse 12. It's an extraordinary verse. Lots of contention over it. Now, if we like, we're going to take a little commercial break at this moment. There's nothing going to come up on the screen. I'm not going to put, you know, kind of peddle any chocolate bars or anything like that. But I want us to just address the obvious question, if you like. Is this seance stuff, is this medium stuff, you know, to put it in a kind of more contemporary context, the Ouija board stuff, the medium, is that fake or real? Is it utter nonsense or is it a dark reality? Is the woman in Endor just an absolute charlatan, you know, a fake making a living from the needy and vulnerable? I probably want to say it's a bit of both. Let me show you why. There is no doubt, is there, that we see a whole bunch of people, whether it's on TV or around us, who are utterly charlatan about the way that they practice things. There are loads of fakes that play on the vulnerable, aren't there? And that may, that may actually be true of the woman here, hence the cry. She may have been you know, working in Endor as a bit of a fake kind of medium, and, sort of say, and now she sees Samuel and goes, whoa, wasn't expecting that one to come out. It might be a cry of utter shock and disbelief and terrifying as well. But the cry in verse 12 could also equally be that it's just dawned on her that this is Samuel, therefore this is Saul, and she's in deep trouble. It could be either way. But see, the text actually doesn't give us the answer. We know that many claim mediums are fake, but we also know, let me take you from Colossians 1, for example, verse 16, it says that all things are created by Jesus, including thrones, powers, rules, and authorities. And what is clear is that there is pagan worship, which is dismissed by Jesus, and, rules, and Jesus rules over it. The Bible shows us this is possible, but not speaking with the dead, because the Bible is clear that the dead cannot speak. This encounter, or sorry, other encounters, 
are far more demonic and much darker. Now, the critical thing that many people say of of this event here is that God does allow something here. And Samuel can uh, speak, though dead, through this medium from Endor. But the point is, we must not make rules from exceptions. God allows this occurrence, this singular occurrence, to happen for his sovereign purposes to be worked out in the demise of Saul. That's the commercial breakover. Now we'll get back to having a look at where we were. Let me summarise Saul's circumstances. They're pretty hopeless. His decisions are hopeless and it leads him to this hopeless misery. We're going to look, that now, look at that now in, verse, sorry, in our third point. Pretty much at verse 15 to 20. I wonder though, just, to, just as we begin this, I wonder if you saw President Obama this week. It's very sobering, wasn't it? Uh, commenting on the uh, tragic shootings in Charleston. I think it was probably one of the best but most sobering speeches I think I've ever heard a world leader speak in the last, in my, certainly in my lifetime. Whoever wrote that speech, whether it was Obama or one of his speechwriters, I think it was brilliant. The, ref- the repeated refrain was this, too many times, too many times. Obama was visibly moved, audibly frustrated. And at one point he said this, let me quote, let me be clear, at some point we as a country will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries with this kind of frequency. And it is in our power to do something about it. I say that recognising that the politics in this town foreclose a lot of those avenues right now. And then there was a very long pause. And he's finished. But it would be wrong for us not to acknowledge it. The BBC headline for that article simply read this. Charleston Church shooting. Obama's hopeless hopeless push for gun control. Saul is so desperate in his situation. He is so hopeless, so hopeless that he's willing to recklessly go around the Philistine camp at Shunem on the plains of the Esdralon to get to this woman in Endor. He's risking his life here because he's in utter misery. Hopelessness, you see, does that. We've seen that misery of hopelessness in, in Obama this week. He's been outspoken for years about his desire to change the gun laws in America, but he knows and even concedes now that it is very likely ever to change. Unlikely, sorry. And likewise, Saul, in this hopeless situation, all alone, the silence from God is utterly torturing him. He wants some guidance. The Philistines are so close. What should he do? Attack? Retreat? What should he do? He doesn't know because he cannot hear the word of God. Because he's continually rejected the word of God. And it is an utterly miserable existence. Where back in, in uh, David in chapter 23 turned to Abiathar, the, the priest, for guidance from God. Saul, having killed all the other priests, now has to go round to Endor, put himself in danger and turn to a medium. See the contrast? 
where David always referred to God as Lord with capitals. You notice that in our translation? That's the covenant promised name of God, Yahweh. It's speaking of relationship, of love, of commitment. How has Saul been referring to God? It's just God. The Hebrew L. No kind of generic, impersonal, no relationship. See, the biggest problem here is not that God is silent, though that is a massive issue, but that Saul hasn't ever wanted to hear what God has to say. See, God is silent because, in a sense, Saul has silenced him. And now that silence, that isolation is killing him, literally. One scholar put verse 15, it's very interesting, he said, these are probably the most sobering words in the whole of scripture. Look at verse 15, I don't know if you spotted it, perhaps the second half. I'm in great distress, Saul said, the Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me. Samuel speaks and explains to Saul that as previously promised in verse 17 there, his kingdom will be torn from him. At the end of that verse, that kingdom will be given to David. David, the man he's been trying to chase down and kill for chapter after chapter. Somebody then looks back to events recorded in chapter 15 where Saul had failed to listen to the Lord's voice. And if you remember back in chapter 15, Saul, what did he do? He twisted God's word. God's command for his own preferences. He might call it, oh, just accommodation. That's how I want to live today. Samuel described it as rebellion. Saul thought it was, oh, it's just a wise act. I'm the king. I'm going to lead. I'll do it my way. Samuel thought it was just being stubborn. Saul, you see, was the master of reinterpreting God's word. And he was blind to the fact that in reality, it was just rejection of God and God's word. And the text is pretty clear, and I'm, I'm really sorry, if, you, if you're a guest amongst us today, it's your first time, it's not always like this. But you look at the text, it isn't easy reading. But principally it's saying, if you reject God's word, he will take it from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's word, you will have to endure God and his silence. In busy, noisy London, uh, you're kind of thinking, hey, that wouldn't be bad. A bit of quiet, you know, the, not, not the background noise of the, of the buses and the trains and the tubes and everything else at work, but total silence. The eerie abandonment that Saul is experiencing here, that is something that I think any of us would struggle to comprehend. When we were on holiday just a, a couple of weeks ago, my boys and I were up in the morning, we were watching CBBC, which parents just keep away from it but there we were watching CBBC and there was a science program on and this doctor went into a chamber where they cut off all sound and then they cut off all light as well and the interesting thing was he went in arrogant and he came out only about four or five minutes later a wreck he was Moved to the point of nearly tears. Utterly isolated. Why? Because we are not made or created for isolation and abandonment. We need to see here in the life of Saul a very sobering warning. The most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. 
And if you're ignoring, if you are doing that now, ignoring God and his loving instructions in the Bible, please, please be warned. Eternal hopelessness is beyond any pain and torment and suffering that we know now. And if that wasn't enough, lastly, these, these last verses really do nail the coffin down. Excuse the pun there, but they do. Uh, we get now to these last verses of 21 to 25, and we see Saul's hopeless demise. I'm going to quickly go through these. Verse 20, look at it. Saul is completely overcome. The woman uh, in Endor there, she sees how terrified and exhausted Saul was and, and urges him to eat. It's a sensible, it's a loving thing. It's actually light, very glimmer in the darkness. And he ignores her, and finally his men convince him, go on, eat something, Saul, you haven't eaten all night and day. In verse 23, we see that. It's a very sad, but a very hopeless scene, isn't it? And the woman, so ironically, provides a meal fit for a king. A king that is about to come to a hopeless end. And I think the last verse, so I'm going to dwell on this just for, as we close, is probably as haunting as verse 15. Look at it. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. And that same night they got up and left. I wonder, does that remind you of any other meal where someone got up and left? And the author just simply says, what? And it was night. Many of you know, as we look through John's Gospel, I think it was last year, in chapter 13, that is exactly what is said when Judas, the disciple, gets up and leaves to betray Jesus. John, just as the writer here in 1 Samuel, they're not merely kind of placing a bit of a time stamp, a bit of a reference. Oh, it was night time and they went out. And No, they're not doing that. It was night and Judas, just like Saul, were going out into a darkness. A darkness from which they would never escape. Someone else entered a darkness like that. In Mark chapter 15, verse 33, it reads like this. At noon, midday, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, we must be so careful that we do not read this 3,000-year-old piece of history in a manner that detaches us from the living word of God that it is. If we sit here and pity Saul and Judas, for example, as well, if we think that we are better or more deserving, then please, please reconsider. We are as hopeless as Saul, as betraying as Judas, and as eternally night-bound as both of them. But the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that someone was willing to get up and to go through the darkness, to experience that absence and silence from God that we deserve for all the times that we've ignored, rebelled, and rejected God and his word. On the cross, Jesus walked out into a hopelessness of darkness and the spiritual night so that we might walk in the light of eternal life if we trust him. You know that song I mentioned? 
at the beginning by four events. The second verse goes like this, strangely. There was once someone I loved whose heart overflowed his cup, a reference to the Psalms there, cup of judgment. And his shoes got covered in blood. Oh, but he never knew because he only looked up, trusting his father. He was a troubled soul whose pain, who knew pain more than most I know. Yet it was hope that dealt the hardest blow. There are two shades of hope. And one Samuel is, a, if you like, a book that contrasts these two shades. David puts his hope in the Lord and his word and becomes the anointed king. Glorious hope. Life-giving hope. Eternal hope. And Saul despises God's word and he ends up hopeless. One Samuel begins with that song. If you remember all those weeks ago when we began with Hannah's song. She sings of God's power to bring down and to rise, uh, bring down people to the grave and raise people up. There are two shades of hope. God did that. He, he brought down the arrogant Saul and raised up the humble David. Two Samuel actually begins with another song. I don't know if you know that. It's the lament of David as he sings about the demise of Saul. See, hope can deal the hardest blow. Saul knew that in his hopelessness and his hopelessness and his abandonment from God. But there is that other shade of hope. And David knew that glorious hope as he trusted God and trusted God's word. And we too can know that glorious hope as we trust the word of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to take the hardest blow for us. And that is why Peter can say in his letter this as I close. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, these are incredibly sobering warnings as we read of the demise of Saul who neglected you and your word. So please, wherever we are at, whether we sit down here reluctant to hear this, struggling to to put these things together, struggling to see who we are and who the Lord Jesus is, please help us see the glorious hope on offer through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is willing to take the hardest blow, to, to take all that hopelessness that we deserve, the abandonment and silence from God, as he did as he stretched out his arms on the cross. Lord, as he took that, we have on offer an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, and new birth into a living hope. Help us trust the Lord Jesus for that, I pray. Amen.